Welcome to the Love First Podcast. We are so thankful that you have joined us. If you are returning, thank you for taking this journey with us. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. And if this is your first time, the purpose of the Love First Podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way that we love. On this episode, our guest is Dr. Jerry Taylor. You'll learn more about him and his fantastic work in relationship to the gospel and race and justice. So thank you for joining us. Well, Jerry Taylor, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, we're so excited you're here. And a lot of people that will be tuning in, they already know you. They've tuned in this evening because you're on the podcast. And so, Jerry, for those who may or may not know, uh, have not met you, and for those who could use an update on the things that you're doing right now, why don't you take a few minutes and introduce yourself, tell us where you are and what you're doing, and especially tell us about the Spain Center. Okay. Well, I am uh, Jerry Taylor, and I teach here at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Uh, we've been here now 17 years. Uh, uh, left Atlanta after having connected with you, Don, in the North Atlanta Church, and and uh, we moved here uh, to teach. I uh, had never uh, served as a professor uh, before, and uh, my now colleagues at that time uh, informed me that uh, teaching was not uh, much different from preaching, so I could transition from the pulpit to the lectern without any any hiccups. So uh, they helped me to do that. So we've been here now uh, 17 years. Uh, married to Pat uh, yeah. for 29 years now. Come on. We've got a 25-year-old daughter, Alicia, and a 21-year-old son, Jeremiah. And uh, we all uh, work together mm. as a team uh, to try to be a, a positive influence in the world mm. uh, in which we live. Mm. Um, a couple of years ago, we were fortunate to be blessed by uh, the administration here at ACU, uh, in particular the provost, Dr. Robert Rhodes, who uh, offered us the opportunity to start a center uh, addressing uh, the issue of race, race mm. studies, um, and so we started the, the Carl Spain Center on Race Studies and Spiritual Action uh, back in 2018. Yes. Uh, we named it after Carl Spain uh, because of his courageous leadership mm. and his prophetic voice as he stood in the midst of a packed house at uh, the ACU, uh, ACC at the time, uh, lectureship. Uh, and confronted the institution about its policy of excluding African-Americans from enrollment at ACU. Nearly 60 years ago. Exactly, exactly. Uh, matter of fact, February 24th, 1960, uh, wow. which was uh, almost a year before I was born. I was born February 27, 1961. Mm. And so um, uh, upon his speech, of course, it uh, brought about some controversy and some uh, pushback, uh, but that was to be expected uh, yes. when you tell the truth uh, 
that people may not be fully prepared to hear. Yes. And so now we've been in operation now for uh, basically two years. Mm-hmm. We conduct across the country what we call uh, the Racial Unity Leadership Summits, which you are a very uh, crucial part of that work. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought it would be good to not just focus on race, uh, focus on that and uh, asking God to give us creative ideas as to how we can uh, work towards racial unity. And so we've rooted our work in the exercise of the spiritual disciplines. We have prayer retreats and we encourage uh, people to do meditation, fasting, uh, of course, prayer, solitude, um, and going deep into the life of God to uh, allow him to erupt in us uh, his energy, his divine energy that can be um, infused in our human-to-human relationships. And so that's the, the kind of work we've been engaged in uh, for wow. the past few years at the Spain Center. Wow. You know, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, a couple of things I want to clarify for our uh, listeners this evening, especially our North Atlanta folks. We did not sanction the move. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> uh, this is, I think this is one of those things uh, where uh, you were a first-round draft pick and someone uh, plucked you uh, from here, but your years in Atlanta were fundamentally transformational mm-hmm. in my life. And a few moments ago, when you shared the ages of your two beautiful uh, young adults now, yeah. Yeah. it just shocks me the time that has uh, elapsed since your move. But uh, your time here, during your time here in -hmm. Atlanta and our uh, coming together at North Atlanta had a transformational impact on my life that still continues to this very moment, which is part of why we're in this conversation now. But before we move on, What I do want to take a moment and say to our listeners is something that has been stressed over the last five to six weeks as we have gone through now, again, numerous, numerous killings of black citizens through either police brutality or crystal clear white supremacist actions. Uh, people have wondered, what in the world do we do to face these? And there is more creativity and innovation. We're seeing innovative conversations uh, come about. Uh, In fact, one of the, I think, very surprising things for a lot of people, uh, not necessarily everyone, is the number of police persons who have come forward and said, we too want to see Uh, revolutionary ideas in changing policing, which I think uh, brings some encouragement. Uh, We've seen people wrapped in my color Mm. begin to wake up to the rampant Mm. danger of systemic white supremacy and the ongoing unaddressed white privilege. And Mm. so that's been a very, very important um, aspect of this uh, recent, what I have called a tsunami of protest around the world. But we have encouraged people to support uh, ongoing works. We have a tendency to always want to reinvent the wheel, where there's some wheels out there that are already turning. 
That's and right. doing great work. And the Spain Center is one of them, which is why my wife and I uh, support the Spain Center, be, not just with our effort, but with our finances, because we believe in your work. And I want others that are listening to consider uh, adding the Spain Center to their financial contributions to help you in the work that you do. And so I want to let everyone know that later in the podcast, we will give you information about how to support the Spain Center and the great work of the Racial Unity Leadership Summits and the prayer retreats that Dr. Taylor uh, is conducting. Jerry, I think it would be powerful for all of our listeners to hear your journey. Um, And I've been blessed to hear that in some very personal ways in personal retreats that you and I have shared together, the two of us. Uh, but then to hear it as you've expressed it uh, to uh, large crowds. So mm-hmm. in the midst of all of that, I've been blessed to hear your story. Would you please just take some time and just kind of share your personal journey in regard to the gospel and, and race and justice? Mm-hmm. Well, um, as I look back over my life, um, I can see where I have been extended two invitations um, uh, or two rails on a track. Uh, one was the invitation to hate, mm. and the other was the invitation to love. Um, I came out of a very hostile uh, environment where uh, the word nigger uh, was commonly used towards uh, black people. Uh, and some of my friends in high school used that word freely. Uh, sometimes in my presence, as if I had no feelings. Um, So having grown up in West Tennessee, Southwest uh, Tennessee, in Tipton County and Shelby County, um, there were many incidents where um, I received the message uh, that my humanity was less than the humanity of of, of white people. Uh, And my people, African-Americans, uh, were treated uh, with disrespect, um, and so having watched my uh, my stepfather and my mother and other um, elders in my family experience that kind of humiliation and dehumanization, um, it began to build um, an intense feeling of hostility within my spirit. As a child, I didn't quite understand it, mm. but as I grew older. Um, it became evident to me that a collection of memories uh, had been uh, deposited in my mind and even in my subconscious mind uh, that had begun to generate a negative energy that uh, I could not uh, display physically and therefore it turned inward uh, and it began to do damage to, to my own soul, my own spirit. And so uh, at the age of 12, I I was baptized, had a grandfather and uncles and aunts and my mother who set uh, before me an example of of courage, uh, the willingness to confront uh, that which was not right. Um, Had a grandmother, Willie Mae, who uh, everybody knew. Uh, She had a good amount of Native American uh, blood in her. Uh, and uh, she did not back down in the face of, of white supremacy. <laughs> and neither did my, my stepfather, who had a third-grade education. 
but to see the battles that they had to fight. Uh, but at the age of 12, I was baptized, had a sincere desire uh, to be a disciple of Jesus and uh, had a wonderful example set uh, in the person of my grandfather, Floyd Drain, and the whole extended family. And so that's where the invitation to uh, be a follower of Christ came. Uh, I would have to study uh, him for myself as I grew old and went off to college and uh, and discovered that Christ uh, Jesus uh, was no weakling. Amen. That uh, uh, people view him as being weak, but he confronted the power structures of his day to the point to where he was assassinated or crucified, killed. And so um, I've decided to to walk that journey uh, as much as I can, um, following uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ uh, and and seeking to allow uh, His life to live itself through through my humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do that uh, for the sake of my own soul, mm. uh, because uh, the salvation of the soul is not something that just happens after this life. It is to be an experiential thing that we. Uh, can see happening in this life. Mm-hmm. The more we, the more we hate, the more we do damage to our own soul. Yes. When we can love, we give the soul what it needs to evolve into becoming fully human. Yes, and it's not just for the other, for the sake of the other person. It's for uh, the sake of of our own soul's health that yes. we do that, and others benefit as a result of that. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. When you uh, talked about that collection, mm-hmm. you know, that collection of memories. And we hear uh, uh, scholars and it's, it's bleeding over into, thankfully, our common conversation. We talk about implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Behind implicit bias is implicit memory. Yes. It's yes. that collection of mm-hmm. memories that are building within us unconsciously our implicit biases and kind of moving us toward which one of those invitations we will accept. Can you share a little bit more about your journey uh, to make some choices between those two invitations, the one to hate and the one to love? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, One has to do with um, uh, having uh, sat on the church pew many Sundays uh, in hearing this message uh, about uh, Jesus the Christ um, and, and hearing about the life that he lived, even in doing right by those who hated him mm. uh, and even praying for his enemies as he took his last breath, mm. uh, praying that uh, they would be forgiven. Um, I did not fully understand how to adequately apply that uh, to my life as a black child at the age of 12 and then uh, into my teenage years. Um, but it did come in handy uh, in terms of one event that I experienced in high school uh, to where uh, one of the white students and I uh, happened to end up in, in a round of uh, play boxing. <laughs> and so, uh, slap boxing. Yeah. So. Um, I ended up uh, getting the best of him in terms of slap boxing and uh, slapped him pretty hard. And 
before I knew it, he had balled up his fist and uh, hit me over my eye and uh, slit that open and blood just shot everywhere. Mm. And uh, I believe I was in the ninth grade at that time. And, uh, uh, and prior to that event, uh, I had preached my first sermon. My ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Merle Durham, had asked me to preach that sermon in her class, which wow. I did. And uh, so all of my classmates in high school knew uh, of my commitment to being a Christ follower wow. and knew that I had uh, responded to the call to preach. And so that was my reputation. Uh, they would call me a preacher and so forth. Uh, but then this incident happened. Mm. And, uh, and here I am standing on the floor of the high school gymnasium and all of my friends gathering around me saying, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. We know you're not going to let that white boy mm. do that to you. Uh, you've got to fight him. You've got to fight him. Mm. And so here I am uh, surrounded by uh, friends who wanted to um, uh, see us uh, in a brawl. And at that point, I had to really make a decision yeah. in my own mind. Um, would I respond to this uh, in a way that would just go against everything that I had established as being who I was in that context? Would I go against that uh, and be uh, egged on to respond to the desire of those who wanted to see uh, a brawl? Uh, now, mind you, this was the front end of integration, uh, early days of, of uh, public school integration. And Millington Central High School, which is the same high school that Justin Timberlake uh, graduated from. Uh, his, his claim uncle. to fame. Yes. <laughs> his uncle and I were in high school quite together. No uh, way. From Timberlake. <laughs> Come on. And so <laughs> that school had had the reputation of having race riots. Mm. And so I knew that... Uh, if I made the decision uh, to fight, then there would have been many others that were willing to follow me down that path. Mm -hmm. um, now this is not a call to be a doormat or to be soft and weak. Uh, as I reflected back upon that moment, it took more strength not to fight uh, than it would have taken to fight. Yes. And again, I did it out of my own personal conviction that uh, there was more riding on this uh, than just uh, a wounded ego. Um, mm. And so as a result of that, uh, some of my friends today have entered into the ministry. Uh, they are uh, living uh, a life that I would say is in harmony with the principles that we, we try to live our lives according to as a young child. Wow. So uh, that, to me, set me on a path to see the harm that uh, could have happened in, in that high school context. But it also made me uh, think more deeply uh, in terms of what uh, could possibly happen on a much broader scale uh, in, the, in, the, in the country as a whole. Uh, if we did not uh, explore and examine these emotions, these uh, powerful emotions and how to uh, not ignore them, uh, but to examine them and how to harness them in a, a way that is constructive. Yes. You know, when I hear that story, 
it is stunning to me to think of how um, God was shaping your heart at that time when you spoke of Jesus's assassination. I think that's I th- I think that's the right word. I think it's hard for us to apply that word because we have genuinely sacred words, crucifixion. Yeah. You know, it's a genuinely sacred word, but in their day, yeah, right. That was yeah. capital punishment That's for right. the guilty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but for the innocent, exactly. that was absolutely a lynching. It was an assassination yes. because of his innocence. Yes. And you, uh, four years prior to that event, mm-hmm. at least in high school, you had another event on April 4th, 1968. Can you tell us a little bit about how that impacted you? Yes. Uh, we lived at the time in Tipton County, a little town called Covington, uh, which is about 36 miles north of Memphis. Um, uh, on that day, I heard uh, the voice of my mother uh, screaming so loudly uh, that it sent chills through my body. I didn't know what had happened to her. Mm or if something had happened to one of our family members. So I rushed into uh, the living room and she was watching uh, Walter uh, Cronkite, mm. who was uh, in the midst of announcing uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King uh, on, on that broadcast. And that's what she was, uh, she was crying uh, uncontrollably uh, as if somebody in our own family had died. So at the age of seven, uh, that sound sent such um, an indelible impression into my spirit that I can hear it even now, that the hurt of my mother represented the hurt of an entire segment of our society, and even those who were not black, uh, that uh, this country had suffered a tremendous loss of somebody who dared to speak the truth and to put his life on the line. Yes. And so um, as I grew older and uh, was able to drive, there would be times I would drive down to the Lorraine Motel when it was still uh, in operation uh, and uh, became friendly with the folks there. Mm. And, um, but I would, I would uh, go down and just sit there and reflect upon what it was that struck my mother in her heart so deeply that mm. would cause that kind of expression. Uh, and, and, and then making a commitment that I would try uh, my best to, uh, to live uh, in such a way that I could also follow in that legacy and mm. uh, to contribute to uh, the kind of truth-telling that sometimes will cause you to be hated and despised uh, and sometimes even kill. Uh, and sometimes people want they want the glory, but they don't want the gory. That's right. Sometimes That's right. the glory comes with the glory, so we have to be prepared for that. Amen. Uh, so that 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 incident with my mother uh, that day uh, made me realize that uh, I was among a people that, for some reason, uh, was hated and despised. Uh, even at that early age, and then much of it would be confirmed uh, as I grew from that age all the way up until uh, young adulthood. Yes. You know, you and I were born 81 days apart. 
And so we are, uh, if we were, if we were in the car industry, you and I would be the same year. Right. And, uh, so I remember, I remember April 4th, 1968. And I remember sitting around that small television in our tiny little house out in Portland, Oregon and silence. And I want people to hear that. Okay. I want our listeners to hear that word Mm -hmm. silence. Now it was somber. Mm -hmm. It was sober. Yeah. It was shocking. Mm -hmm. It was unsettling. And I'm the youngest of three Mm -hmm. uh, children. So Mm -hmm. I could feel it that everyone in our family was feeling something horrible has Mm -hmm. happened. But it was not until uh, you and I were on a retreat probably 18, about 18 months ago Mm -hmm. where you and I started merging our experiences of April 4th, 1968. And I remember hearing you talk about your mom's scream. Yes, yes. And my family's silence. Mm -hmm. A white family that felt very clearly something horrible has happened. This is wrong. This is bad. It wasn't, it yeah. wasn't the far uh, uh, side of the, the track where it was, you know, what many people responded. Because mm-hmm. people, people forget. Yeah. People forget. They have whitewashed MLK's life and those circumstances. He yeah. was deeply hated. Yes. By many people for many reasons yes. of stands that he had taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't want anyone to get the feeling that my family was, was anything but concerned, mm-hmm. grieving. All of that was true. Right. What struck me was silence yeah. versus mm-hmm. a scream as if a family member yeah. had died. And so I begin to reflect on our journey, yours and mine, and uh, and in my own family. And I remember when Philando Castile was murdered, I had a similar awakening that our son, Jerome, who is black, Mm. he could not sleep that night. And I Mm. shared with you, I could have cried myself to sleep, but he couldn't sleep. And it was another awakening that he embodied. Mm-hmm. And does embody an experience, an, mm-hmm. an incarnated experience yeah. that is different. And can you maybe speak to our listeners a little bit about the work you do that brings together mm-hmm. people who embody an experience mm-hmm. and people who long to be co-conspirators in justice? you know, allies in the cause of justice. You do this work all the time. Mm-hmm. You are in that merging of worlds all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that's been like for you, even if you want to go back back into your childhood and bring that one forward, what it's been like to navigate that? Okay, all right. Um, you know, having uh, been on the front end of, of uh, social integration in the context of public education, um, I was able to see uh, some of the positives uh, of that 
experiment and some of the shortcomings of that experiment. Um, you know, we were able to occupy the same physical space uh, in public education. You had black bodies and white bodies, uh, brown bodies sitting next to each other uh, in the classes uh, and engaging in other activities together, uh, eating in the same cafeteria together, mm. um, black bodies, white bodies, brown bodies. Uh, that was social integration. Uh, what we did not realize, I think, at that time is that it takes more than just putting bodies next to each other in the same space. Uh, physical integration, social integration uh, is uh, inadequate without engaging in spiritual integration. We got our bodies in the same space, but our, our inner beings were still millions of miles apart. Yes. And we thought that we had accomplished integration uh, simply because we got bodies together, but that was more of assimilation mm -hmm. as opposed to genuine integration. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you have integration, uh, both parties gain some and both parties lose some. But in this form of assimilation, it seems like black people lost more uh, and gained uh, less in terms of our humanity, but mm. we were given more in terms of materiality. Um, but that cannot replace a genuine uh, interconnected spirituality. Mm -hmm. And so while we uh, shared physical space and we were fascinated by outer space, we neglected to pay attention to the inner space of human beings that lived in this country together. When you were in a non-integrated school, mm -hmm. you had teachers yes. that looked like you, yeah. experienced life like you, Tell us about that difference as, as uh, integra integrative efforts were happening, the way you described it, right? Where mm -hmm. body's in the same place, but not an interconnectedness of soul and experience. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, at uh, E.A. Harrell Elementary School, um, all my teachers were black, uh, except for two. And uh, the principal was black, the administration was black, uh, classmates black. Um, and it felt like an extended family mm -hmm. uh, because I did not have to uh, spend energy uh, proving my humanity to that community. That, that was a given. Um, I appreciated them. They appreciated me. Mm -hmm. uh, that was an emotional cathexis or an emotional connection that existed within that community that we did not have to really uh, strive to build because most of those people looked like uh, the families out of which we had come. <laughs> and so right. uh, they, they disciplined us as uncles and aunts would do, as grandparents would do. Uh, and we knew that it was done from a place of love, that yeah. they wanted us to be the best people that we could be. But then when I uh, was uprooted uh, from that culture, uh, that connectedness to people that I knew loved me just for who I was, 
and was then planted in a culture, in a cultural setting, somewhat like an agricultural setting where my soul, my spirit as a black child was expected to grow, there was something different in that soil. Uh, I felt then at that early age that I had been relegated to the back of the class, uh, that my uh, white uh, uh, peers uh, in the plays were given the most prominent roles, that I was never allowed to stand at center stage by myself in the spotlight, uh, but that was a given to my white counterparts. Uh, and so coming out of E.A. Harrell and going into Millington South, I realized that I didn't feel that same kind of, of connection to uh, the, the all white teachers, mm. except for one, uh, uh, Mrs. Jones, uh, and majority white, uh, white students that surrounded me there. And so that's the, that's the difference uh, that I began to feel even alienated from myself mm. because I, at that early age, I felt that the self that God had given to me <clears throat> was not honored, was not even seen. It felt invisible. And so without anybody saying it verbally that you are a second-class citizen in this educational system, nobody had to tell me that. It was experientially known. That was the position that was somehow assigned to me even as, as a black student in the public education system that was supposed to have been uh, an integration uh, experience. Mm -hmm. I want to explore that idea of system. Um, okay. You are, uh, uh, what I, uh, some of our listeners know, but not all of them know, is this is an area of scholarship for you. So you have experiential truth and experience in, in just life, and then you have devoted your life to scholarship in this area. And so in using the word system, one of the things that I have recognized is you have shared in the past about, if I remember right, a couple of teachers and a nearby farmer that were white. And yeah. these were individuals yes. with whom you had a mixture of experiences that you would categorize as including positive experiences. Yes. And what I hear sometimes is for people wrapped in my color skin, Mm -hmm. They kind of latch on to those individual stories and mm -hmm. try to imagine that those three individual interactions surely, you know, yeah. elevated the situation so that, you know, it, it, it kind of said to uh, Jerry's young soul, you know, not all white people are bad and so on and so forth. But I think what we're missing, uh, I'm saying people especially mm -hmm. people wrapped in my color, mm -hmm. is that the system yeah. can function one way all on its own. Yes. While individuals that look like people in that system can make other choices, yeah. but that doesn't mean that the system has now been salvaged right. or redeemed. Exactly. And so can you help us a little bit with the difference between those individual good encounters mm -hmm. and the system yeah. that was literally mm -hmm. disintegrating yes. your young self. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, the farmer that I referenced 
uh, in earlier uh, gatherings. Um, he was the one that created a job for me as a young child. Um, I think I was at the age of 12 or 13 when I started uh, working uh, for him. Um, but he would give me a lecture uh, just about every summer before school started back, uh, encouraging me to finish high school. He kept telling me, make sure you get, get an education, stay in high school. Uh, the first car that I ever owned uh, was a 1963 Falcon Ford um, that uh, I purchased for $45. Come on. <laughs> and so uh, it was this farmer uh, who gave me those $45 to, uh, to purchase that car. But I noticed that even in all of the, uh, the expression of, of, of his humanity, uh, that there was still a system in which he had to operate, uh, that there were uh, certain things that he could and could not do, certain restrictions, certain codes that he had to, uh, uh, had to pay attention to, that if he violated those racial codes, uh, there was a possibility that he would be kicked out of the system. Mm. Uh, so I noticed that uh, during the lunch uh, breaks, that me and the other black workers would have to eat our food outside. Uh, but I saw white workers being invited into his home. Uh, and then even uh, when we would go to his house, we always had to go to the back of the house. And this was like in the 70s mm. till I went off to college in 1980. Um, you know, so even with all of the positives that he had, he was still restricted, maybe out of fear of being rejected by uh, a system that uh, was aimed against my humanity as a person. Uh, but yet as an individual, there were certain things he could do, but there were other things he could not do. It wasn't until a few years ago before my mother passed that she and I went back uh, to visit with this gentleman and for the first time, uh, his daughter-in-law invited us into his house. Mm. And so we were able to go into his living room and to sit with him. Mm. Um, and it was at that time that he inquired about uh, my stepfather who had passed away back in 2002, mm. uh, that this gentleman began to cry. And it was as if uh, the tears from his eyes were saying, to us uh, things that words could not say. Uh, and so I saw that the system had done damage to him because it restricted his full expression of his humanity towards my humanity. Mm. And now uh, suffering from Parkinson's disease, he's now sitting in his home and now we're able to enter into his home. Mm. And so I just, you know, I, I just saw that as being uh, an evil system yes. that even though people were in it, they found some kind of ways to let some goodness seep out. Yes. Uh, but the courage was not there enough to uh, dismantle that system. Uh, he and uh, the English teacher that allowed me to uh, preach my sermon in her class, they attended the same church wow. and did not realize uh, that they were United Methodists and uh, my English teacher wrote me a handwritten letter that I have to this day 
And in that letter, she said that I hope that uh, you will be afforded the opportunity uh, to get an education to accompany uh, the wisdom that uh, she saw in me as, as a young uh, person at that time. And so, you know, I didn't know that that church was, was predominantly white, uh, that uh, there, there probably were very few people of color in that church, if any at all. But I would eventually apply to enter Southern Methodist University, which is a United Methodist Church school. And, um, and, and they gave me uh, a scholarship uh, to attend there for $30 per credit hour. Wow. Uh, this was in 1984. Mm. And uh, so, again, uh, the systemic uh, air that people have to breathe, uh, if we allow those systems to get in us, uh, sometimes they can overwhelm us. Uh, but I, the glimmer of hope is that even when that system has taken root in us, God has mm. worked something in us that that system cannot completely occupy or control and it kind of seeps out. Yes. Uh, so um, that's what I would say in response to, to your, your question, Don, is that uh, these man-made humanly concocted systems are designed to restrict the full expression of our humanity. Mm-hmm. And until we find the courage to be ousted by them, uh, we will not have the courage to give the full expression of our humanity to our neighbor that may look different from us. Yes. And you spoke about the journey of that you're on, and you are one of the people that has provided such important leadership for Susan, my wife, and for me, and for countless others on the interior work of the soul, venturing into that place. You know, it's one thing to take a, an external retreat. It's another yeah. thing to, to get inside and to start wrestling around with what's going on inside of us. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Lord has guided you mm-hmm. to deal with that inner self mm-hmm. and to, to begin to work out of that deep inner integration with God in your, in your inner self? Mm-hmm. Well, um, God has created us in his own image, in his own image, in his image. Um, there are other images that seek to replace that divine image in which God has created us in. Um, and whenever we succumb to uh, images that are less than God, then we desecrate the image of God that exists within us. Um, When we bow to the images concocted for us by external systems, we deify uh, those structures and those systems and those images that have been made by uh, fallen human beings. And we do damage to the image of God uh, that exists at the most fundamental part of our being in the basement of our being mm-hmm. and so uh, of course those who are concerned with their own uh, self-image you know the image is everything that was true for Nebuchadnezzar uh, and it's true for imperial powers as well that's why we have the images of emperors and presidents on our currency uh, and so the question is 
uh, which image are we willing to bow to? Mm. Is it the divine image uh, that God has stamped on the currents of our soul? Mm. Or is it to some external image that some system, narcissistic system has created to its own glory? Mm-hmm. And I believe that each human being cannot be fully free until they swim back into the ocean of God's being uh, and become enveloped by his being, which provides us with the most secure place we could ever experience. And so it is in that place where you do not have to recognize any restrictions or laws that will tell you that you cannot love this person, you cannot love that person, you cannot connect with this person or connect with that person because it is in that place that you are truly free. And that is the place to which we will eventually all return. Uh, We just get a foretaste of it. Yes. Into God through the practice of prayer, meditation, silence and solitude uh, and sit within that place that we now Uh, feel a sense of security that I can say what he wants me to say, do what he wants me to do, go where he wants me to go. And uh, regardless of the outcome, because I'm already at where I'm going when I'm in him. (laughs) So, and that's the greatest threat to the power structures of this world, because when you operate from that place, there is nothing that the world can offer you as a bribe uh, to attract you from the place where you find your greatest sense of security, your greatest sense of importance, uh, your greatest sense of being in the company of one who will have to be with you when you take your last breath. Come on, come on. I think about uh, theologian Ted Peters, Mm. and he wrote his, you know, uh, epic work Mm. on theology called God, the World's Future. Yes. And yes. whether whether we believe it or not is immaterial, I've likened it to suggesting that the Mississippi would resist flowing into the Gulf yes. or uh, that the Columbia River would resist flowing into the Pacific. Sorry, right. that's yeah. where you're headed, you know? Exactly. And the river of humanity is, yeah. God is the world's future. And right. he uses this term which attracted my attention prolepsis. Yeah. And the idea is that uh, in literature, that a proleptic moment in a movie or Mm -hmm. in literature is taking something from the future. Yeah. And bringing it into the moment Mm -hmm. so much so that the moment is, the moment is transformed Mm -hmm. by the reality of that future event. Uh, I think about uh, like uh, a series like Harry Potter, where they will introduce something from the future or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it changes how you watch a character or how you think about that plot. Right. And so what what Jesus says is, let me let me peel back. Yeah. What's coming. And let me pray it into existence. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let me tell you what is coming so that in the moment, right now, you will begin to live into that reality. Right. Um, A couple of things I want us to do is, first of all, 
you and I've talked about this, but I want to confirm it for our listeners. You are willing to come back and do another, another episode with us, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Count okay. me. <laughs> Checks in the mail on that one. Okay. So we are very thankful for that. As we bring this episode to a conclusion, you shared something with me that really struck me. And uh, Jerry, as I've reflected on it over the last few days, mm-hmm. what it has suggested to me is this parable that you brought to my attention in regard to the gospel and race and justice. Mm-hmm. I started reflecting on the last 20 years of our lives intertwining. And I thought, this, this is a parable that, that encapsulates the core of your story. You talked about the parable in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, of the wheat and the tares, these, these two plants growing amidst each other, one healthy and coming to a full uh, uh, harvest of wheat, the other one uh, looking similar, yeah. but empty and devoid of any benefit or nourishment. That's right. Mm-hmm. But there they are together. So as we wrap up our time to, uh, in this episode together, can you share with us a little bit about a practical application of Jesus's teaching on the parable of the wheat mm-hmm. and the tares? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have to remember who owns the harvest. So many times we engage each other and we sideline the creator of all creation. This is God's enterprise. uh, And we don't speak of him as if we're inviting people to focus on the pie in the sky. We're saying bring the pie from the sky to the earth right now. We have the capacity to do that. Uh, if we believe in the existence of God, my, my activism uh, must be uh, evidence that I believe in the existence of the creator. That is the one who is uh, in, in enabling me to act, to speak, mm-hmm. to do, to engage. And so um, God is overseeing his creation. We must not forget that. Uh, he does not sleep, nor does he slumber. And so sometimes we are so busy trying to change each other, to be reconciled to each other, when we have not uh, allowed our internal memories to be reconciled to the one from whom we have come. Mm. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul says, be reconciled to God first. Mm. And it is out of that spiritual reconciliation going Uh, back to a state of connectedness that we had with God before we were ever born. And when we experience that rediscovery of our true, genuine connectivity to the life of God, it then clears away uh, the improper training, the improper conditioning that we've received from the external world that has actually separated us and cut us off from our neighbor. We can't be reconciled to other human beings until we are first reconciled to the giver of the life that we own by stewardship, but that he still owns by ownership. Mm. And so as we look around in this great big old harvest that we call the world, and even in the church, there will be wheat and there will be tear. And the, the truth of the matter is that sometimes in my heart, 
there grows both plants. In mm. tear. Good word. And so God is still the harvest of my own heart. Uh, he knows how to weed out the tear according mm-hmm. to his wisdom in a way that allows the wheat in my life to continue to exist and to grow and to evolve. Mm-hmm. And so if he does that in the human heart, I think he also has the divine capacity to do that in the context of human relationships. It is so tempting uh, to identify the tear and to want to tear the tear up and to uh, tear it out. Amen. (laughs) Uh, But when we do that uh, in our own fallen human wisdom, we end up damaging the wheat in the process. And so the only beneficiary of our tearing up the tear would be the evil one who actually planted the tear in the garden in the first place. And so that, that warrants us uh, humbly approaching our divine creator, asking him for the wisdom, uh, to give us the wisdom on how to navigate these human relationships with all of their complexities, but remembering that God is overseeing the harvest. and He will give us the wisdom to know how uh, to live productively in this world without us feeling the need to do his job. I'm going I'm to I'm let God handle his job. He got, he got some work to do. It's on his shoulders. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a willing vessel, but that's all I am, a rusty tool and the awesome hand of God. And I better not, I should not do anything that is out of step with what God is seeking to do in and through my life because it it really ends up being all about him. And and so we must follow his guidance, his wisdom, Mm -hmm. even when there's that temptation and that invitation Mm -hmm. to go in a direction away from what we know uh, is his being and his nature. We have to always choose uh, to go towards God because that's eventually where we're going to end up back, yes. being with God. We listen. Let me just say this: Don. we all got a terminal illness, and I don't know if my uh, time is tomorrow or next week, but we got to live with that understanding in the right now because that's the only way we can live without living in the fear of death. Amen. is to know that, you know, it's inevitable. But while I breathe, I want to devote that to uh, honoring God and honoring the wheat, mm. uh, wheat that God is, is seeking to produce. Amen. Man, Jerry, thank you. That's so powerful. And you've given us, as usual, uh, so much to think about and to invest our souls in, you know, the, the, the meat of God's wisdom to invest our, in, uh, in which to invest our souls. And I love what you shared. Uh, God owns that harvest. We steward, but God owns it. And that includes the harvest of our own hearts. And sometimes we imagine that our harvest, our hearts are just full of good wheat. It's everybody else has got tears <laughs> down in there. But if we look at our own garden, there's probably a little weeding that needs to be done. And the only one with the wisdom to do that internally or interpersonally is is God. And And the only only way that I can uh, respond 
with humility to the weed that I see in the life of another human being is to ask God to give me the wisdom to graciously uh, address the weeds and the tear uh, that grew up in my own heart because that keeps me from uh, the addiction to self-righteousness. That, uh, that I know that there's something in me that is still not fully right and I need his grace to, to make it right. So when I see somebody else, I have to entreat them with that same type of a prayer that I pray for myself. I must pray for them as well. Amen. Oh, that's powerful. Jerry, thank you so much. We are so, I hate that this first episode is uh, coming to a close, but I am thankful to know that part two will come next week. Um, let's, uh, let's remind everyone that of what, it, what are some ways that they can uh, come alongside and support the Spain Center? Um, first of all, praying for the work that we're seeking to do. Um, uh, for example, this weekend is Juneteenth. Uh, we know that there will be uh, a presidential rally in Tulsa, um, and there will be the Juneteenth event in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a strategic place uh, um, because in 1921, uh, they had a massacre of yes. 300 uh, black people that were killed. And what was known as Black Wall Street was burned, looted, uh, and destroyed. Yes. And so you'll have two events going on in Tulsa this weekend. And so uh, we want to be keeping uh, that city in our prayers. Yes. Um, and that God will uh, will supervise that mm -hmm. uh, that that city with with uh, with peace. Yes. Um, uh, so that that that's the kind of thing that we've been doing, um, going to the the hot spots, uh, kind of between uh, the incident that we saw happen in Minneapolis and then the trial date, and trying to build uh, cross cultural, cross racial uh, connections during that period of the incident and the trial date, so that you will have a community mm. of uh, of leaders that have been spending time reconciling to God first and then reconciling to each other so that uh, when they sit at the table, is not enemies looking at each other, but now friends, spiritual friends connected genuinely as a result of them being connected and rooted together in the same God. So that's the kind of work we do uh, as a Spain Center, trying to get ahead of some of this stuff before it happens. As you know, we've been on the journey since uh, 2000, beginning in your office on our knees, praying together. And mm -hmm. so now 20 years later, um, you know, God has prepared us for such a time as this uh, uh, to hold things together through his power and his spirit. Amen. And for those of you that are touched by this work, I'd ask you, you can uh, just, you can go online and search the Carl Spain Center at ACU and it'll give you an opportunity to join them financially. And I am personally invested in that. And I'm asking you to join me in that personal investment uh, to support this outstanding work. And you can see that it doesn't just have a local impact and the extension of the impact on the church and the body of Christ uh, nationwide is not just limited to uh, one very small focus. It is a community focus and impacting the world with the kingdom of God. 
Dr. Jerry Taylor, thank you for joining us. And we are with great anticipation looking forward to the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us and God bless you and your work. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love first, I know.